I'd like you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. And uh, while, you're, while you're turning there, let me just share something with you that I think is, is kind of fun. Keith McCullough, who joined us in our congregation for about eight, nine months or so, he and his wife Annette and their son Achille, uh, has been called to be the pastor-elect at Mount Zion Baptist Church over on 3rd Street. Keith and I meet once every two weeks or so, and we are teaching through Joshua together. So the congregation over at Mount Zion is going through Joshua at the same time we are, and Keith and I get a chance to compare notes every other Saturday morning. And yesterday was particularly animated because uh, I kept on going, no, that, 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 that's really cool. And he kept on going, oh, no, that's really cool. And we were writing things down, so we're, we're kind of joint preaching here. And if you, if you know anybody, if you see anybody over at Mount Zion, tell them hi, and, and, and you can compare notes with them. So I'm excited about that. We're in Joshua 2. I'm going to read the chapter, and, and then we'll go through it. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth and beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that I, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, 
we will be guiltless with, with respect to th this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of our, your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something this morning. Fear, fear will make you desperate, or it will set you free. Fear will either make you desperate or it will set you free. We're going to see two types of fear in our passage today. Fear of God and fear of, fear of well, fear of anything else. One of those fears will sustain you for all of eternity. It will give you hope and it will set you free. The other will produce, and if you stop to think about this, it's very true, it's a, a fact of life. The other fear of anything but God will produce nothing but more fear in your life, more apprehension. The more you fear, the more you concentrate on the fear, the more you concentrate on the fear, the more afraid you get. That's how it works. It'll weigh you down. It'll cause you to stumble. And I hope by the end of the sermon, you'll be able to tell one fear from the other. So our chapter is divided up into four passages this morning. Uh, and I, and I, I like this. It's a spy story. It's a spy story. Anybody who knows me know I like to read spy novels for, for my relaxation time. This is, this is God at all. It's one fantastic adventure. It's a story of transformation and change. It's one of faith. It's one of trust. There's even some doubt in there. It's got everything that a good James Bond movie would have, except the exploding cars and helicopters and stuff. So it's right here in Joshua. So what we're going to see is we're going to see the spies' travels in verses 1 through 22. But in their travels, we're also going to learn some things about Rahab that are going to be useful for us. We'll see her assistance to the spies in verses 1 through 7. And then we'll see her assurance from the spies in verses 8 through 12. And then in verses 22 through 24, we will see the testimony of the spies. Now, on our way through the passage, we're going to talk about Rahab's lie, which always comes up, frequently comes up in discussions of Joshua chapter 2. But we're going to spend more time looking at the role fear has in this entire scenario. So our sermon for today is called Lies and Melting Hearts. It's part three of our series in Joshua, which we're calling the promise and the land. Last week, we saw Israel camped out on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. 
Uh, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And now, now they can look across the river. They can see Canaan. They can see the land that they've been promised. As a matter of fact, God called it the promised land. It's an abundant, rich, beautiful, lush land. That land that God called the land of milk and honey. And I, I just want to emphasize this because this is a generation of people that have been born and grew up in the wilderness. They've never experienced anything other than God's provision of manna and water. Manna coming out of the sky on a daily basis. It wouldn't last longer than a day except the manna that fell before the Sabbath. That would last for two days so that they would have something to eat. Water would come from uh, unlikely sources out of rocks and that sort of thing. So God tells them that this is a land of milk and honey. They've got no idea what milk and honey is about. Maybe they've heard about it. Maybe they've heard stories, but they've never experienced it. And God is going to take them there. But you know what? They have to cross the Jordan first. And the Jordan that they have to cross is at flood stage. It's a raging river. And not only that, once they cross the Jordan, they're going to have to fight to take the land. So there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. But God has promised them that they will possess everywhere they place their feet. It is his vow to them. So we saw last week that God's blessings do not always come easily. Some will require a sacrifice. And in this case here at the Jordan, Israel will have to be willing to sacrifice everything, everything in order to receive their blessing. They're going to have to fight. Some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to lose loved ones. Some of them are going to lose families. It's all on the line. Now, the primary lesson here that God is teaching is not that they are going to have to sacrifice themselves, but he is teaching them a principle about how he functions in his creation, the principle of sacrifice in order to receive blessing. And if we extend that principle, that basic principle that's being taught right here towards its logical conclusion, we'll see that the ultimate sacrifice will yield the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing is peace and a home with God. And we're kind of seeing figures of that right here. And the beauty of this is that God already knows that his precious, beloved children are unable to make that ultimate sacrifice. They can't do it on their own. That one sacrifice that would bring perfect peace and an eternal home to them. So out of his great love, they don't know this yet, but out of his great love for his creation and his, his uh, design to bring glory to himself, God is going to make that sacrifice himself. He's going to sacrifice himself. He teaches us in this lesson about sacrifices. He teaches us early in the Bible about sacrifice. So he teaches us this early in the Bible so that, that Israel and you and me will understand the nature of sacrifice. So that when God takes on flesh and sacrifices his only son, we'll get it. So by the time Jesus comes, he's been teaching sacrifice for almost 3,000 years. And he wants us to understand it, so he teaches us over and over and over again. So we learned about sacrifice last week. 
We learned something important about God last week, and we want to do that as we go through Joshua. We want to learn how there's real-world application to our lives, but more importantly, what do we learn about God? Because the more we learn about God, the more we learn about how we relate to him. We're going to hear something this week as well. Let's go to our text, take a look at the travel of the spies. In verse 1, Joshua sends two spies out from Shittim, which is right about here, the orange dot on the map there. It's about 20-some miles from Jericho. Now, that might seem like a lot of land, in particular when you have to walk, and it's about a day's walk back then. But keep in mind that the Hebrew camp has somewhere between a million and a million and a half people in it. When they give us numbers, there's 600-some-odd thousand men. But that didn't include their families and all the children and everything. There, there are quite a few people. It didn't include the slaves. So there are quite a few people in this, and this is what the general area that they're in looks like. It's fairly desolate, fairly barren. They would have needed, when they established camp, they would have needed water. They would have needed wells. So they would have camped as near to where they were headed as they could be and still have a source of fresh water. Now, the Jordan wouldn't work. It's at flood stage. It is a muddy mess. So Shittim would have had at least one well, maybe multiple wells. It was a medium-sized town, and that's where they camped. So the spies, the spies leave Shittim and cross the river, and they enter Jericho, and they stay at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, the king hears that there are spies at Rahab's house. He's got some information. He sends some people over there to ask her, what they're doing there, and, and you know, whether or not she'll turn them over. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, now, even right here, we see how heavily fortified Jericho is. They're getting ready to close the gate. These guys got out of the gate before the gates were closed, and, and, and the woman says, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And the idea is that if they don't get out there before the gates close, they're not going to be able to come back in. They're not going to be able to get out. They're not going to be able to chase these guys. But in verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Now, again, many folks look at these three verses and immediately go to the fact that Rahab lies about the spies. She lies. While that is a valid observation, while I believe it is a valid question to ask about Rahab's behavior here, particularly in light of the law, Rahab probably doesn't know the law, but the spies certainly do. They get it. They've been hearing it. They was declared just before they started uh, getting ready to cross the river. You and I know about the law. We're familiar with it. And I'm here to tell, you, to tell you that there's a lot more to learn from this passage and whether or not we're allowed to lie. So that's not the point. So let's just admit right up front that Rahab lied. I'll get back to that a little bit later on in the sermon. But first, I want to take a little deeper look into the passage because there's a whole lot going on and a whole lot that we can learn here. The first thing I want you to notice is this. This, this woman is one gigantic compromise. She has compromised everything. 
every day of her life. She compromises her morals. She compromises her reputation. She compromises her safety. Every day of her life, she compromises the reputation of her family. She's a giant compromise. And she is a woman who serves the king of Jericho. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about in serving the king of Jericho. Back then, just as in today, uh, a large part of our interaction with hostile nations and nations that we might have some friction with is to engage in gathering intelligence. So spies are not a modern contrivance. This is not something that just popped up in the 20th century. In a bustling town like Jericho, it would behoove the king to know who was coming and going out of the city, to know what they were doing in the city, where they came from, how long they're going to stay there, and all the details. One of the first places that a traveler or a trader would stop in a large trading town like Jericho would be at one of the local pubs or bars or at a place like Rahab's. Women like Rahab were in the employ of the king. They were ready and reliable sources of information to the comings and goings of people from out of town. Why were they were there? See, this is why the king sent his people to Rahab first. And why those people that he sent fully expect Rahab to cooperate fully with the king. And why they instantly believe that Rahab is telling the truth when she tells them, you got to hurry up and get out of the gate because that's where they, where they went. Even though the guys are hidden up on the roof. I want you to see how daring Rahab's move is here. It really is incredible. Rahab risked everything to help these spies out. Rahab risked everything to assist the spies. Rahab knows that the king will execute her and her family if he finds out what she's doing. They'll die horribly. But she defies the king to protect the spies. She risks her life and everything she knows to protect these spies. Why would Rahab do that? Why don't you just think, why would Rahab do that? Take a look at the picture of Jericho in your bulletin. Heavily fortified city. One set of walls, one set of inner walls, a set of outer walls. Some people say that archaeological evidence on Jericho goes back 9,000 years. I don't want to debate that whole issue. It's just an old, old city. And it sits on top of a hill. And the way it ended up with two sets of walls was when the city covered about 12 acres or so, they built a wall on it right on top of the hill to protect it from attackers. The city grew over the years, and uh, the poorer people lived outside the walls, but after a while, the, the uh, city fathers realized that they needed to be protected too because if they got defeated, it would be easier to attack the city, so they built another set of walls. Rahab lives in that city. It's one of the most heavily fortified cities in the region. That's where safety is. People had attacked the city time and time again and weren't able to defeat it. That's what makes this whole story about Jericho so incredible. It was supposed to be invincible. So Rahab is safe. Why would she risk everything? Why wouldn't she just say, you know what, this is pretty safe. Nobody's ever been able to defeat us. I'm just going to wait this thing out and see what happens. Take a look in the next uh, uh, three verses, 8 through 11, four verses. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, listen, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you've devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now look, what we see that fear has fallen upon the people of Jericho. They've heard about Israel's victories on the way to Canaan. And, and look where those victories were. First one in the south, down at a small town called Arad, which is down at the southern tip of the Negev. Now, I stood in Arad, uh, and the reason they didn't just go north from there is there's nothing there. Uh, you, you, you cross about 20 miles of absolutely barren wasteland, and there are the ruins of Arad, and one of the funny things is the only thing within a 20-mile radius in that area is a McDonald's. <laughs> Sitting right there at the foot of a rod. And all the people, like, know each other. <laughs> and when you come in with a bus, it's really a big thing. So th there, there was this victory in a rod. And, and then we also saw uh, a victory over King Sihon in, in uh, uh, Ammon. And there in Bashan over King Og. Don't you want to meet that guy, Og? <laughs> what a name, isn't it? You could just see some great big burly guy with a big beard, and he probably smells bad, and, and, and he would say, my name is Og. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So Israel is this impenetrable, moving wall that's coming their way, and now they're right across the river from Jericho, and everyone knows what's going to happen. They know it's inevitable, and they are afraid of God. They're afraid of God, but not in a good way. They're so afraid, their hearts melt. Now, I love the, the incredibly powerful image here uh, that that word produces. It means to be disheartened to the point of total despair. And the phrase shows up three times in the passage. So we know that that's a Hebrew literary device to tell us that this is really important. This fear plays an important part in what's going on here. Some of these people are so afraid that they're willing to kill to avoid what's coming. See, that's what the king wants to do with the spies. He's going to catch them. He's going to torture them until they tell him everything they know, exactly where is the camp, how many people do you have, how many sets of armor do you have, how many spears do you have, any chariots, do you have any horses. He's going to get all the details so that he can defend his city and then kill the spies and just hope that because the spies don't return to Joshua, that Joshua will give up and go somewhere else. Maybe he'll continue north and bother those people up there. These people are desperate. So is the king. Fear. Fear will make you desperate. So is, is that what's happening to Rahab? Is that what's going on in Rahab's heart here? Is she desperate? I, I don't think so. 
She's not desperate the way they are. She has some fear, but you know what? It's a different type of fear. And it's buried right there in verse 11. As soon as she heard it, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, you Hebrew people. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Do you see what's there in the second half of verse 11? It is Rahab's confession of faith. It's her confession of faith. Her fear has not driven her away from God. It's driven her to him. And it has caused her to see the truth. And she's putting everything on the line in order to appropriate that truth, in order to embrace it, in order to make it a part of her life. This woman who has served so many others, who has compromised herself over and over and over again, who has served her king, the king of Jericho, now is uncompromising. And instead of the king of Jericho, she now serves the one true God, the king of kings, the only God. She puts all of her faith and all of her trust in God. You see, her fear is of God, but it is a reverential, respectful, all-honor-giving, worshipful fear. The type of fear that we as his children are supposed to have of him. And for her trust, she receives assurance. She says to the spies, verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Rahab trusts the spies to to spare her and her family. The spies trust Rahab not to rat them out. The spies trust God not only to get them back to Joshua and the camp, but to give them the land. But only if she honors her end of the deal. She tells the spies to hide out in the hills for three days. Then it should be safe for them to return to Shittim. These are the hills outside of Jericho. Those hills are directly to the north. They're kind of the only hills right outside the border of Jericho. And the reason she sends them there is they're directly to the north, and the Jordan is to the, the, the east. And see, when they go to chase the spies, they're going to chase them towards the Jordan, thinking they're headed back to Joshua, and they want to catch them before they get back to Joshua. They're not going to go in the wrong direction looking for them. That's why she knows they're going to be safe for three, day, three days. The spies tell her to hang a scarlet cord from her window. Her house is in the wall around Jericho. It would be the outer wall you see in your bulletin there. Keep that in the back of your mind as we move into chapter 3. That's kind of a significant point. Neither she nor her family should leave their home once the battle begins. That scarlet cord will be the only sign that her family's inside and that Joshua's men should not 
harm those people. If they go outside, uh, they could be in trouble. So finally, we see the return of the spies to Joshua in verse 22 and 24, and they give Joshua their testimony. And they said to Joshua, listen, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, there are two things we need to notice here. First, they say, truly the Lord has given us the land. They've seen something. They've seen some sign that convinces them that it's all going to happen the way they've been told, that the Lord has already moved. And that sign that they see is not the fear that these people have of Joshua and the armies. Because he says, and also the inhabitants melt away. If the sign was a fear uh, that they had, it would say, you know, we know the Lord's given us land because they're afraid. But this is an end also. I think the sign they saw was Rahab's conversion, Rahab's transformation, Rahab's trust in the one true God and her confidence in God, her confidence that their God was going to give Israel their land. They saw a Gentile believing in God. So we've seen the travel of the spies here, their testimony. And in between, we've seen Rahab's assistant, Rahab's assurance. It's the flow of the passage. We've seen the fear that made the king and the, the people desperate, so desperate they would kill. The fear of a man, the fear of loss, the fear of pain. And we've seen the fear that set Rahab free. The fear that gave her eternal life. Well, how do we know that? Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. How do we know that Rahab's conversion wasn't temporary? That it was just an emotional reaction? Verses 1 through 6. Matthew's noted because it starts out with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hetzron, and Hetzron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz. By who? By Rahab. The father of Boaz by Rahab. Do you see what happened? Rahab became one of God's children. She married a Jewish man. And, you know, he doesn't finish the line, but, you know, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, another great story, another Gentile woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and so on and so forth. Rahab ends up in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Not just a Gentile, but check this out. A woman of ill repute forever remembered as an ancestor of the Messiah, a woman of ill repute and a liar. It's incredible. Well, it's 
You know, again, right there on the surface, this chapter is filled with amazing lessons. What do we learn from this chapter? First, we learn that God can redeem anyone, even a Gentile woman with loose morals. She's not beyond being lost. The girl who is regarded as the lowest of the low becomes a link in the chain that leads to the highest of the high. We've learned that salvation can be found in a slender red rope dangling from a window. I don't want to stretch this metaphor too high, but it is a beautiful image of the blood of Christ flowing down from heaven and offering us salvation. We've learned that the fear of man, or anything else for that matter, will cause you to lose everything, but the fear of God will cause you to gain everything, and in particular eternal life. We learn that the fear of God should cause us as believers to take action. Rahab not only feared God, but she acted on her faith. She didn't just wait to see how it all turned out. She didn't wait for the battle to begin to make sure that she was on the winning side. She decided to put her newfound faith on display. And for her boldness and her courage, here we are reading about her 4,000 years later. There she is in the genealogy of Christ. Well, what about that lie, John? You mean it's okay for me to lie? I mean, if she's in the genealogy of Christ and God has redeemed her and it's okay for her to lie, it must be okay for me to lie too. Let me just remind you of a couple things. We see throughout the Bible, and we particularly will see in Joshua, uh, that deception is a, an acceptable part of warfare. We'll see it over and over again in Joshua. But lest anyone try to take this as a license to lie, keep in mind that Rahab does not lie to protect her reputation. That's already shot. She does not lie to get any material gain. She's already got it in Jericho. She does not lie to get out of trouble. Matter of fact, she could get in tremendous lethal trouble for what she did. She doesn't lie to look good in front of her friends. She doesn't lie to put on a mask and, and to act like something she's not. She doesn't lie to avoid embarrassment. She lies to save her family in a time of war. Now, I've got to be honest with you here. I still believe that Rahab at some point needed to repent from her lie. For all I know, maybe she did. The text doesn't say. The text, and, and notice, the, the text never judges Rahab. It, it never gives an opinion one way or another whether what she did was right or wrong. All it does is it, it tells the story. It doesn't tell us how she handled everything emotionally and spiritually. All the writer of Joshua intended was to tell us his tale. And right there, again, on the surface, in the tale, we should see hope for you and me. You see, in her lie, it becomes easy to see that even though Rahab has been transformed, she, just like every other pillar in the Bible, is not yet perfect. God is still working on Rahab, and she will, in time, just like you and me, be made perfect. We're all going to be made perfect. But you know something? That is in eternity. 
Our perfection comes in eternity. It is not today. And I know some of us feel very close to perfection, but I got to be honest with you, if the Lord tarries, it's not going to be tomorrow either. And if you have any question about whether or not you are perfect, I just want you to sit down this afternoon and examine your thought life. Ask yourself if the thoughts you have are pure. Ask them if the thoughts you have are the thoughts of a perfect person. Ask yourself if you get angry when something doesn't go your way. Ask yourself if you get disappointed in the people around you. Ask yourself if you have expectations of God and you you just kind of deflate when your expectations aren't met. Ask yourself if the neighbor pulls up in the driveway in a brand new car and you're sitting there with 150,000 miles on you, you don't go, gee, why does he have that car? I should have that car. Ask yourself if you covet, if you have lust, if, if you lie. Rahab's not perfect, neither are we. And that's where the hope is. God is working on us. And God's promise to us is the work that Jesus does on the cross will bring us to that perfection. Not our behavior, not our efforts to perfect ourselves, but his work to perfect us. And you know what? That leads to a profound lesson about God. God's working on and in Rahab, using her, blessing her. And at this time in Joshua, Rahab is saved. We see that as we... We, we continue. Rahab shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. But she's not perfect. This is an example of a theological term. Pastor Scott mentioned it earlier. Called the already and not yet. It's got a technical term. I don't want to get into that. Rahab's salvation is documented and testified by none other than the Holy Spirit who miraculously inspired the book of Joshua and the book of Matthew and the book of Hebrews. He tells us that Rahab is not yet perfected, but for all intents and purposes, God's work in Rahab's heart and Rahab's life is already accomplished. It's done. Now, we can see this already and not yet in another area of Joshua 2 when we put it in the context of Joshua chapter 1. If you remember the promise that God gave Joshua and the people of Israel in chapter 1, it was in Joshua 1.3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. I want you to look at the tenses. They don't match up. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you. God has already given to them where they have not yet walked. Just let that sink in for a moment. Last week we heard about sacrifice. This week we get a peek a glimpse at God's incredible omniscience. God knows everything. God knows everything that was. God knows everything that is. God knows everything that will be. Now listen, it's not just a matter of God knowing what could be. 
Because if it just could be, then it isn't because God knows what will be. Figure that one out over lunchtime. God knows everything that will be. God's omniscience, the already and not yet, gave this despised the land before they stepped into it. But as they step onto the soil of Jericho, the land is theirs. Now this plays out in areas of history. This concept plays out in areas of our personal life. God already knows the end of days, even though they have not yet happened. God already knows baby formed in the womb, even though it has not yet been born. God already knows the number of days, the number of our days, even though they have not yet been fulfilled. And perhaps the most personal application for you and me in all of this is this. God knows that we will be fully sanctified, although we are not complete in that area yet. While God is working on us, beloved, He sees the work is completed. We are already sanctified, even though we have not yet experienced the perfection that sanctification will bring. We will not see it until the Lord returns. Scripture tells us so. Paul says it in Philippians 1.6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of completion is the day of the Lord. God's capability to know the already and the not yet is our guarantee of our place in eternity. It's our guarantee that we're going to go be with him. We may not know the future. We may not understand how it all works out. We may even have some questions about whether or not all of this is true. But our scripture tells us that God knows it all. And, and scripture tells us that not only does he know it, but he is sovereign over it. You know, it's easy to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. It's another step in our faith to acknowledge that he's sovereign over the future. That he has authority over what will be. So you and I, if we are here today, if we call upon the Lord as our Lord and Savior, if we have repented, if we've confessed our sins, if we've acknowledged him as the only son of God, the only way to salvation, if we've turned from our righteousness and towards his righteousness, we can be assured of our salvation. God does a transformation. He starts the work. He's going to finish it. The work that Jesus Christ did on the cross was not only perfect, but it was sufficient, effective, and complete in every way. So while we are not yet perfected, even as God is molding us and shaping us, even as God is conforming us to his image, he tells us that our outcome is assured. It's not based on our behavior. We can't mess it up. But neither can we take it for granted. Neither can we take it as a license to do whatever we want to do. God has planted, if you're a believer, God has planted a desire in your heart to be closer to him. 
If you don't have that desire, please come and talk to me. I've got concerns for your mortal soul. If you've responded to some write-in or some call or something and you don't have a desire to be closer to the Lord, that may be the Holy Spirit telling you you need to make another step. So God has given you a desire to be closer to Him. That desire is the assurance of your salvation. That desire is the guarantee that God is going to perfect that desire in you the day you stand before Him in a glorified body. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You because You are perfect and You are holy and Your plan of redemption is not only perfect, but it is complete. Lord, we thank You that as You draw us unto You, Lord, as You as you fan into flame that desire to be closer to you, Father, that we be ever responsive to it. We thank you for the picture of Rahab, Father, that we can see her completion, but we see her imperfection as well. We thank you, Lord, for the idea that you do not call for us to be perfect, but call for us to strive for your perfection. And Lord, we just pray that you would build on that foundation in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.